All right, let's return to the text that was read for us, Acts chapter 17. You have some notes there every week to help you follow along. I'd like to say that's only because I think you'd want to engage with the Word and study that throughout the week. But I'm forced to reckon with the fact that sometimes I'm not as clear as I'd like to be. And it sure helps to know where this thing's going, right? As you sit through 30, 35, 40, 45 minutes. Acts chapter 17, there's a couple familiar verses in this text. One of them is the idea of turning the world upside down. The other is that theme that we've often heard about the Bereans and how they considered the word. Uh, The second will kind of serve the first. We want to look at uh, this idea of turning the world upside down. So think with me about the Christianity of the Bible. Not necessarily the Christianity of every church that names the name Christian, but the Christianity of the Bible What we see unfolding in Scripture is a confident, aggressive faith that challenges the unbelief in the culture around us. That's the Christianity of the Bible. Oftentimes, we think Christianity is is something that's enclosed in certain buildings. Uh, We go there, and we kind of huddle up together, and we all agree to agree, and then kind of sneak out into the world and go about our business. But that's not how Christianity unfolds in the Bible, and especially in the book of Acts. Instead, it's, it's, a, it's a, an aggressive faith, full of confidence in this kingdom that is advancing. And wherever it goes as light, it is dispersing darkness. It's challenging unbelief. We've seen in multiple occasions now in the book of Acts where a complaint is raised by unbelievers and the complaint is charged against these Christians who are messing with the status quo either of religious ritual or of pagan practice. But either way, people are being upset because somebody's shining the light into the darkness. You can read about that light shining into darkness in John chapter 3. Ephesians 5 is a great text that unfolds light scattering the darkness. In our text today, we have another one of these complaints. Essentially, the complaint is the light is too bright. Maybe someone said that this morning. You went in and your kids weren't getting up. So what do you do? You just turn the light on. Oh, oh, turn it off. It's too bright. Starting about this time of year and on through the winter when it's so dark outside, our our kitchen light that hangs over the kitchen table can dim. And Sunday morning breakfast is always with a dimmer light. Nobody wants to come down to a dark world and have this blaring bright kitchen light. It's too bright. They use different language in our text. These Christians are turning the world upside down. The world turned upside down. 
This usually implies some kind of big life-changing circumstance. It's something big. So what is the something big? What are they talking about? These Christians have turned our world upside down. Well, you know the answer. It's the gospel. It's the truth. But remember, this language comes from detractors. It's the unbelievers who are saying it's the Christians that have turned the world upside down. But when we step back and analyze the situation, we recognize the world is already upside down. It was right side up in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. There was no sin. But then the world was turned upside down by sin and its curse. Read Romans 8. And it'll resonate with you. The whole earth is groaning under the weight of sin's ruin, its consequence. That's in the spiritual realm of sin and the spiritual warfare and struggle, and it's in the physical consequences of that spiritual failure. Our bodies wear out. We know those who are suffering physically or even dying. This is the groaning that we're in. The world is already upside down because of sin. So think about it. The unbelievers who are upside down are saying that their upside down has been turned upside down. You're saying, no, not following you. That's too many flips, right? I would say the Christians then are actually turning it right side up. The upside-down world of the unbelievers is being righted by the power of the gospel. It's the story of conversion. It's Saul of Tarsus on a rampage, torturing, imprisoning, dragging people off because of their faith in the way, following Jesus. And on the road to Damascus, the amazing grace of God steamrolls him, flattens him, and then resurrects him to newness of life. His upside-down world was righted by the gospel. You know, all week I was thinking upside-down, right-side-up, and which way really is it? And I opened the door to the church, and a stink bug fell on my shoulder, and I flicked it on the ground, and he was... Upside down. And I actually felt bad for him. <laughs> you know, just sitting there wiggling and can't get any leverage to turn over. I'm like, really? If I turn him over, he's going to come back in the building probably. But I turned him over and went inside. Never done that before, leads to a stink bug, but I couldn't help it because I'm studying about turning right side up the things that are upside down. Christians are actually turning the world right side up. It's sin that turned it upside down. These unbelievers actually have it wrong. They're already upside down, but they think that's normal. It's not. And you know better. You know the truth. But here's the danger. When we read these stories and acts of the Christians in all these cities, and they're just making the good news known. They're just sharing good news. Jesus can rescue you from your sin. 
the danger we face is that Christians often confuse being passive with being polite. We, we don't want to cause a stir. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to put a damper on the conversations in the lunchroom or suddenly have that neighbor like, oh, okay, and head back to his house because he didn't want to talk about that religious stuff. We confuse passive with being polite. We think being quiet is maybe being kind, not causing a stir. So you'll hear Christians say things like, well, I don't want to impose my beliefs on someone. I don't want to upset people or make them think I, I, I hate them because after all, we're accused of being haters. Others might say, well, it causes a tension when I kind of insert truth into the conversations about cultural issues, gender identity, abortion, race. After all, they don't believe the Bible anyway. Why should I talk about it? Well, in our text, I think we're going to see something that's clear. Jesus intends for us to be in conflict with our world. Jesus' plan is not for you to go into the workplace and into your neighborhood and enjoy peace. That's not his plan. He wants you to have peace in your heart, John 14. There's plenty of peace that can be experienced there. But his plan is for you to go into the world and experience conflict, tension. It's the whole point of light and dark. What fellowship does light have with darkness, Paul argues? They're contrary to each other. They cannot coexist. So Jesus tells his disciples in one of the final huddles before he goes to the to crucifixion, and he gathers them around, and the news doesn't sound like one of those pep talks to get ready for the second half. It's, hey, remember this, the world hated me, and it's going to hate you too. Okay, on three. And they do break, and they're scattered, the book of Acts tells us, into all the world to experience that the world really will hate you. Jesus intends for you to have conflict this week because you are right side up and the world's upside down because you walk in light and they walk in darkness. And when you're finding complete harmony everywhere you go, something's wrong with your Christian witness. Jesus intends for you to go into the world. When he says the world will hate you, He's praying to his father and he prays not that the father would take us out of the world, but that he would send us into the world. He intends for truth to confront the lie. He intends for light to collide with darkness. He intends for you to turn someone's world upside down. But maybe you've, you've, you've confused being passive with being peaceful. Nobody's cart is upset by you. No one's world is turned upside down. So here's our big idea. You must speak the truth that can transform an unbeliever's life. You must turn their world upside down. Now we know this isn't in our power to do, but it is what God has purposed to use us for. We're witnesses. 
We're not the actual mechanism and power. We're just the witnesses to the power. So what do we see in this text that would help us to be clear about turning the world upside down? I want us to think first of the tool of turning the world upside down. I'm picturing, you know, a giant crowbar you know, a long steel bar, maybe a little flattened edge, and you could like shove it under the corner of an appliance or something, and by pushing it down, you could lift several hundred pounds. Now, if you went over with your own hands and tried to pick it up, you you probably couldn't do it. But with the mechanical advantage of that lever, you have this tool to lift something. It's kind of the picture here. A world has been turned upside down. This giant bug on its back with its legs kicking in the air, and we're going to right this thing, get it back on its feet. We're going to restore a little bit of Eden to this fallen world by introducing the redemption that's found in Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that Paul is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus is the Christ. The tool for turning the world upside down is the gospel. The good news. You know it in some form. I think the more forms we know it in, the better our witness will be. The more ways we can say it, sometimes in one short sentence, maybe God is merciful to save sinners in Christ. Maybe you'll expand on it a little bit through the catechism of the song we sing. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. There's a lot there. You might not sing it to your coworker, but hopefully, hopefully you have it in your head so that you can explain What you believe is the good news. How does the good news unfold in this chapter? Because in other places, even in the book of Acts, we've seen different language. What's the language of the gospel in this text? It begins with the Christ. The Christ. That's always important for us to be reminded of what that means. The Christ. We are so familiar with it, it just becomes like a name, almost a nickname. We know Jesus is the proper name, but Christ is like this title slash substitute name. But Christ is the Old Testament idea of Messiah. But even that word's kind of familiar to us. So Messiah and Christ both mean God's anointed one. This is God's plan. This is God's provision. And when you read the Old Testament about God's provision, an overwhelming theme is the provision of God of righteousness. He's called in the Old Testament the righteous branch or that perfect spotless lamb. The righteousness is important. That's why Paul would write in Romans of the righteousness of God being revealed to us. It's the Christ, it's the Messiah. So the first element of the gospel that we're aware of is the righteous life of Christ. 
which is essential to the gospel. Christ has satisfied the law's demands. His righteousness can become ours. You don't go to heaven without a record of perfect righteousness. You can either accomplish it on your own, which the Bible tells us is impossible, or you can, by faith, receive the record of Christ's righteousness. So don't ever overlook that word Christ and think it's just a different way of saying Jesus. That's representing the righteousness of God being given to sinners who do not have righteousness of their own. But it goes on. The Christ would suffer. And obviously suffering there is just representative of not just the pain while he was alive, but it's really a a word of death. It was a suffering to the point of death. So we we need the righteous life of Christ. We need the atoning death of Christ. The righteous life of Christ provides for our righteous record. The atoning death of Christ provides for our forgiveness. But Paul has more to say. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. See, that's how we know suffering is really representative of the whole death of Christ. Because Paul now adds the resurrection as part of the good news. Read 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll see that there's all this revelation about Jesus, but how do we know that's true? We know it's true when we see him raised from the dead. God putting his stamp on everything Christ said and did. It's true. It works. The victorious resurrection of Christ shapes our gospel message. So we have the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. All of them substitutionary. All of them in the place of sinners. So that when a sinner believes in Jesus, they are believing that he can make them righteous. He can make them forgiven. He can make them alive forevermore. But the good news also includes the advancing kingdom. We see this not in Paul's specific message, but in what the unbelievers said in verse 7, in their accusation. The accusation was they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. To which Paul did not say, whoa, 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 we never said that. They would have said, amen. Yes, it's true. There is another king, Jesus. Now, they would have articulated that it would lead us to be model citizens in Rome. But it's because we serve a higher authority, King Jesus. This is a reminder of what's often lost in in the modern Christian understanding of the Christian faith, and that's the ascension of Jesus Christ. Oh, we love Christmas and the birth of Christ. We love Easter and the resurrection season. And we don't often think much of the ascension. It's just, yeah, he went back to heaven. But it wasn't just back to heaven when we read Peter's preaching at Pentecost. It was to go back and sit on a throne. 
fulfilling and demonstrating all those verses we read this morning in the Psalms about the kingdom of God. Jesus is king. His kingdom is advancing. And it's advancing triumphantly with great momentum so that the gates of hell can't withstand this force. And that's the church collective, the church universal, but that's the church individual. That's you. You this week and your witness. It's an unstoppable force. The kingdom is advancing in you, through you, as you witness to this good news. The righteous life of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, the victorious resurrection of Christ, and the advancing kingdom of Christ. All of this gospel, Paul introduced by saying, this had to happen. His language is, it was necessary. Luke had used that language before in Luke 24. Resurrection day. Two men on the road to Emmaus encounter the Christ. They don't know it's him. They come back into the upper room and they're telling their story. Nobody can believe it. Jesus appears and he begins showing them from the Old Testament how all these things had to happen. It was necessary for God to provide righteousness, forgiveness, and eternal life because no sinner was going to arrive there on their own. It was necessary. This is God's plan. It's the only plan. It's the exclusive plan gospel. And when you declare it, you'll be told you're arrogant, you're hateful, that you would think everyone else is going to hell unless they believe like you believe. But just know that's because they're upside down. And the only hope of writing them is not quietness or passivity, but it's taking the lever and the mechanical advantage, the power of the gospel, and writing them. This is our tool. The world is upside down, and we have the power of the gospel, and should not be ashamed of it, and its power to write sinners. So keep praying. I know that person seems as lost as the proverbial goose in the blizzard. But are we ashamed of the gospel and do we doubt its power? It's our tool for turning the world upside down or right side up. Now we want to consider how to use this tool. This would be the method of turning the world upside down. How do we use the tool of the gospel? This is an interesting passage. It's not something we think about much. Verses 2 and 3, Paul, as was his custom, for three Sabbath days, the text says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim, five verbs that have to do with our vocal cords. There are other sermons that can be preached regarding your life as an example for the glory of God. And we've talked about that much in Acts. We see them both at times. 
In our text today, what we're seeing very clearly is the emphasis on you speaking the good news. Not to the exclusion of life, that would be hypocrisy. But we can't just do life only because your life, as good as it could be, is not telling the clear message that Jesus rescues sinners. So we need them both. But this text has this almost like over-the-top kind of emphasis on our part of talking. I think the method that we need to understand in turning the world upside down is the method of Bible conversations. Conversations. Now, now note that word and its full etymology so that you understand that it, that it has to do with dialogue. It's actually the Greek word in the text. He reasoned with them. If you just took the Greek letters and kind of made them into the English word, we have dialogue. This, this back and forth. And I say this because oftentimes we think that being a witness means monologue, a lecture. I better have it packaged and rehearsed and I have to either stand on a street corner or I have to like awkwardly like change gears and introduce my speech into a conversation. But the problem is we missed what was just said, the conversation. We're not dialoguing. We're not engaging people with truth. We don't intend to, but when we just lecture and kind of drop all our big ideas at once on someone, it's, it's kind of like cramming it down their throat. And I know that because that's what they often say. Just feel like you're trying to cram your ideas down my throat. And it's probably because we, we were rightly eager to share, or maybe at least willingly obedient, but we thought we had to say it all at once, everything has to be clear, and we got to talk them into this, when the reality is, just in our text alone, with what we know, Paul was taking weeks of back and forth conversation. Sometimes they may have asked questions and he may have said, you know what, let's talk about that in a few days. You think about it. You see, maybe with a greater confidence in the word of God and the Holy Spirit, we won't feel like we need to stand on the pedestal or in the spotlight. There may be times where we can say, you know, that's a really good question. Why don't we both think about that based on that verse that I told you about? And let's talk about it over lunch next week. It's just not as hard as we've made it. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. It goes on to say he explained. Again, it's a simple word. It, seemed, it means to open what was closed. Oh, here's what that means. And you explain it to them. That doesn't have to be persuasive. It's just the facts. You're just telling them what God has said is true. You're explaining to them how the Christian faith flows from the truth of the Bible. Now you get to that next verb, it's a little stronger maybe. He's proving to them. So he's explaining and proving this truth about Jesus. This word for prove just means to like set it there. A lawyer might do this. You know, you've seen the TV shows or movie and there's that Ziploc bag or something and you know I'd like to introduce as you know into evidence uh, exhibit A they're just setting it before the jurors 
That's that word for prove. It doesn't mean you're only successful if you convince them. It means you've laid out the facts. You, you said it there. So he's reasoned with them. He's been explaining, proving, saying, proclaiming. All of these words call us to engage with people in conversations. And sometimes a lot of the conversation might just be about, you know, the kid in their shopping cart when they apologize for throwing a fit and then you struck up a conversation. And it might not be all theology, but how can you build on that conversation and just introduce some hope or something you've learned from the Bible about raising your kids? And the fact that you said you learned it from the Bible has now begun to fall under this category of dialogue, of back and forth. Our text is clear from two accounts in these cities that sometimes people are like, no thanks, not going to engage in that, I don't know. But one, you don't know when that's going to happen, so you can't back out before you get there. And two, even when they say that, you can't know if that's really the end of the story. The text calls us to engage with people in conversations about what God has said is true. And it's not just truth we're laying out there. We should be doing it as truth with hope. Because they might want to just sit there and debate truth, but what you're really handing them is hope. And the great eye of the Christian witness has that eye on their need. Where are they dissatisfied? What do they want? What are they longing for? Why do they hate the church so much? There's some wound there. There's something they want fixed. And regardless of how they word it, the answer we know is the hope of the gospel. So engage in those conversations and don't panic when it doesn't go as far as you thought it would. Or if you feel like you didn't get every verse in or any verse in. Take whatever you can get. That's how the Spirit's going to lead you. And it'll take all the pressure off. It, you, you will know in some cases, I don't have much time I can give to this. But you can trust the Lord with that. Give what you can give in that moment. This methodology kind of language in the second point almost seems like too pragmatic. Like, where, where's the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit? It's right there in your words, in your conversations. The Bible and Christianity is, is, is not an unthinking kind of context. God has revealed in words things that our minds can take in and understand especially the simplicity of the gospel. And so utilize this method of Bible conversations. But know this, because of the stories in our text, when we engage in Bible conversations, trying to turn their world right side up, there will be a cost. So let's consider the cost of turning the world upside down. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble 
They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. They drug him before the authorities, made this accusation. They've turned the world upside down. They're claiming there's another king. We get to verse 13. We see the similar situation. Really the same crowd comes to Berea as well, and it says they were agitating and stirring up the crowds. This text, again, is helpful for us because this feels more like America. When we read of Stephen getting stoned or people being thrown in prison, I have to to rely on my Voice of the Martyrs magazine for my head to even make sense of that. I've not been persecuted. I've not had things thrown at me. I've not had my house burned down. I've not had the church threatened. I've never had somebody say, you're going to go to jail if you talk about Jesus. But I think we can all relate to somebody being agitated or stirred up when we talked about our faith, and they want to call it a crutch. Talked about Christianity or the church, and they want to talk about how they've been wounded by the church, and it's a bunch of hypocrites. I think we can relate to trying to live for Christ in our words and in our way of life and having people respond to that with what I would call antagonism. The cost of turning the world upside down is at least antagonism. It may grow, it may blossom, unfortunately, into violent opposition as it has in many places of the world. But for our understanding, let's at least start with knowing the risk. You'll talk this week, and you'll think, I'm going to do what, what Pastor Adam said. I'm gonna, that conversation that happens at Walmart, you know, just because you're humans in the same aisle, and you actually engage with someone, I'm going to say something about my church or the Bible, and you're going to do it, and you're going to get this mean, snarky response and think, I, I thought this is what we were supposed to do. Yes, and so no, from these two stories and the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, that the Christian message stirs up antagonism. Light came into the world, John 3, and the darkness hated the light. In our text, the darkness is in the form of this old Jewish crowd, They're unbelievers and they have their way and they're going to work their way into God's pleasure. It's the same Jewish unbelief that schemed the death of Jesus. But their antagonism here in the text is not unlike what we see today. If you follow some of these cultural movements, you you begin to see how it, it started, you know, decades ago. These sins were referred to as in the closet, either in their act or their thinking. But it was like, just let us do what we want to do. And they claimed that was all they were wanting. But here we are decades later, and they're claiming, you don't have the right to say that's wrong. That's offensive. That's hateful. You see, there's a guise these days of being moral and upright, fair and loving, even religious in cultural pagan practices. There's a denial of truth. Morality is relative. It's whatever feels right to you. But it hasn't stopped there. 
This denial of truth has led to an outright condemnation of those who stand for truth. I would venture to say that any one of you could go to your workplace and, and somebody in, in the number of places represented by where you work in this room alone, somebody, if you went to your workplace and said, God has clearly said we are either male or female. Somebody in this room would get in trouble for that. It just wouldn't fly. You'd get a slap on the wrist at least for being insensitive and such. And that's where we're going. They came to these cities trying to right the the world of these people to give them good news. And religious kind of sounding people who, who were the tolerant and loving ones were saying, you're, you're mean and hateful and you should be condemned for what you're saying. That's the land of the free and the home of the brave as its trajectory is heading. That's standing for what is true. As a Christian, or frankly, as a scientist stating what has always been clearly seen in the world, even if you think it evolved, that will not be tolerated. You cannot introduce that into the public square. That's harmful. And so as you take your lever of truth and try to right someone's world, they're going to accuse you of basically being a criminal, of harming them, hurting them. That's why even in Jackson County, our county has pushed multiple times now legislation outlawing conversion therapy. It's kind of subtle there. It's not in Jefferson City. It's, it's just trying to like run this through a committee of just a handful to say it's illegal for you to tell someone, no, God created you as male or female and sexuality in in marriage should only be between a a male and a female. And trying to talk someone out of being a homosexual would be a bit dangerous anymore. Know the cost of turning the world upside down. It sounds great to all huddle up here on Sunday morning. Let's bring it in. Remember, we're going to go out and be witnesses. And then we run out into the world to be witnesses and encounter all kinds of opposition. Got some friends here from camp where I worked for 10 years. So it reminds me of this story, having a team meeting. We're out in a ball field. We're having a game. It starts pouring down rain. I mean, it's that kind of rain where you can hardly see anything. So the game has to come to an end. We said, Go to your team meetings and get out of here. So we huddled up with our team and gave some last team cheer, and we said, back to your cabins. Well, in the blinding rain, nobody could see the chicken wire baseball backstop where our team was meeting. So we turned to break from our meeting, and everybody ran right into this baseball backstop. And it gave a little bit, and then it fought back. (laughs) And the whole crowd got pushed back, into the field and into the mud, thinking, what in the world just happened? We were running to our cabins in blinding rain, and we met some force we did not expect to encounter. It's just good to know 
that in all of our excitement and rightful obedience to being witnesses, that at times we will experience antagonism. You're called to turn the world upside down. Know that that might get you in trouble sometimes. But take heart. As we see lastly, the result of turning the world upside down. In verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Verses 11 and 12. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Maybe you're, maybe you're talking to some coworker or family member even now. They're not to verse 11. Many of them therefore believed but they're, they're grappling with these truths that you've introduced to them. But don't miss verse 12. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. That's a cultural reference to uh, kind of the elite, people in power. And even those people were coming to faith in Jesus. The result is conversion, changed lives. In the parable Jesus gave us, this is that seed that was sown, the seed being the good news, and it fell on fertile ground and it grew with good root and it eventually bears fruit. Paul, writing of his experience from our first story in Thessalonica, which sounds so bad, the rabble, the mob, and it chased him out of town, But he writes about verse 4, some of them were persuaded. This is how he describes it in his letter back to them, that church at Thessalonica. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's somebody that you're sharing good news with that may be on the brink of turning from their idolatry, their idolatry of materialism, hedonism, whatever it is, turning from those idols to the living God. You don't know when that's going to happen. So take heart. The gospel works. It converts sinners. Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Describing the word in James 1, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So pray this week that God would use you to bring about the conversion, the result that we're looking for in this upside down world. God is calling you to use this mechanical advantage of the gospel to engage in Bible conversations that may stir antagonism, but may also stir hearts to the beauty and the rescue found in Jesus. So we finish with a few questions. Who would accuse you of giving them a lot to think about. Who would accuse you of being hard to argue against? 
man, you just always seem to have a good answer, some kind of truth. Who would accuse you of lovingly challenging their worldviews? As depraved as they may be. Who would accuse you of turning their world upside down? Though really, the gospel would say right side up. This is our task this week. May God help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. A good word that is faithful to warn us about hardship. But that just pales in comparison to the goodness of the good news. And so having tasted your salvation, having sung of it, that Christ is our sure and steady anchor, having sung, Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin. May we take this good news and share it this week. With confidence in your word, empowered by your spirit, may we go from this place and tell someone. We ask this in Jesus' name. For the glory of your advancing kingdom, amen.